Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our worship service. Everybody who's here in person and also every one of you who is worshiping with us and joining us online. May our time together in worship and fellowship be faithful and uplifting, praising our Creator. Let us find strength and joy in our shared faith. As we gather, allow us to reflect the love and grace that our God has given to us. Because history has several announcements today. You're reminded of the congregational meeting planned for tomorrow evening, March the 4th at 7.30 in the Yarrow Church Building. Classics Pacific East will meet Wednesday, March 6th, hosted by Nooksack Valley American Reformed Church. This meeting will take place in the Sumas Christian Reformed Church Building. We will celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord willing, next week, March 10th in the 2 p.m. service. Glenn DeVries and Gord Gelderman are approaching the end of their terms in office. Council is seeking nominations to fill one deacon and two elder positions. Please submit the names of those who are scripturally qualified for office, particularly as described in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, and capable of fulfilling their mandates, found in Articles 22 and 23 of the Church Order. Nominations are requested by March the 10th and can be passed on to your ward elder or sent to clerk at sardisreform.ca. We welcome to our congregation Roger and Sylvia Lancake, as well as their son Levi, who come to us from the church at Chilliwack. This morning, or today actually, the whole day, we get Pastor Tim leading us in worship. Good afternoon. What a great privilege to meet together once again to worship our awesome God and to learn a little bit more about him from his perfect word. As we gather together, we always remember that it's our awesome God who gathers us, who, who calls us to worship him. And uh, we'll see today that he calls us to worship him not just out of tradition or out of habit, but he calls us to worship him with our whole heart. So with that in mind, our call to worship is from Psalm 138, uh, verses 1 to 2. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. As we come to worship the Lord with our whole heart, of course, we come with the utmost humility. And so we come confessing our dependence on him. Congregation, where does our help come from? Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven. And God greets us with his blessing from scripture. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing together about God not so much wanting our sacrifices as much as he wants us to love him and serve him with our whole heart and soul and mind. Let's sing that with the words of Psalm 40, stanzas 3 and 7.
At the beginning of our worship, we read the law of God as we have it for us in the Ten Commandments. And we do this to remind us of the holy nature of our God, the perfect nature of his heart, and the imperfect nature of our heart. And thus our need for a perfect Savior, someone who uh, truly has God's law written on his heart, and who can write God's law on our hearts. So let's keep that in mind as we read the law of God from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male servant or female servant, your livestock or the sojourner within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Brothers and sisters, having heard God's law, let's sing together to the Lord, asking him to blot out our sins. And as we'll see shortly, uh, the same image comes up in our text for this service. But we'll sing uh, that request to the Lord uh, with the words of Psalm 51, stanzas 1 and 2. Thank you. 
Let's go before our Lord in a word of prayer, and we'll ask him uh, for forgiveness for our sins, a prayer of confession, but also uh, we'll ask him for his blessing on our worship together this service. Let's pray. O great and gracious God, Lord, your word is perfect, and your judgments and your law are blameless. Lord, we know that you are a great and holy God, a God who rightfully condemns those who sin. Lord, as we look at your law, we see that it rightfully condemns us for our sin. We can see so clearly, Lord, by your grace, we can see that we have sinned against our neighbors. We acknowledge by the power of your word and spirit that you have revealed to us how we have been angry, how we've been unfaithful, how we've been jealous people, how we've been covetous people. We can see how we've hurt our neighbors, how we failed to help our neighbors, to value and care for them and love them as we value and care for and love ourselves. And all these things and many more, Lord, we realize that by far our greatest sin hasn't even been against our neighbors, but our greatest sin by far has been against you. You are our great God. You give us our life and our breath and all things. You're our great Savior. Father, we ask that you will forgive us. We ask that you will wash us perfectly clean, blot out our transgressions, make us whiter than snow. Lord, after forgiving us, declaring us innocent by the power, by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, we ask that you won't stop there, but you will not remove your Spirit from us, but work powerfully by your Spirit to renew us and transform us. Lord, we look at your Son, Jesus Christ, and how he lived for you perfectly, how he lived for his neighbor perfectly, how he had your perfect law written on his hearts. And Lord, that's what we want. That's what we long for. We ask by the power of your word and spirit, you'll restore to us the joy of your salvation and renew a right spirit within us. And Lord, we thank you and praise you because we know that you do forgive us in your love and infinite compassion. And therefore, Lord, you are feared. We worship and praise you gladly with reverence and with awe. Lord, we ask that our worship might be pleasing in your sight, that you might bless it, that it might be satisfying to you as a fragrant offering of our deep love and gratitude. But Lord, also make your word speak deep into our souls now as we turn to open it together. By your perfect word, show us yourself and show us ourselves and show us our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all these things only in his name alone. Amen. So as you might remember from a couple of weeks ago, uh, we started going through uh, a portion of Isaiah leading up to a Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We're focusing on chapters 44 to 45, uh, which are directed to Israel while they're in exile. Uh, they're suffering because of their own sin and disobedience. Uh, as God describes in Zechariah 7, uh, he called his people to turn back and to stop their sinful ways, to stop oppressing widows and the fatherless and sojourner and the poor, to stop devising evil against one another and in their hearts uh, prior to the exile. And yet God says uh, that the, his people refused to pay attention. Uh, they turned their back on him. They, they plugged their ears, he says. They made their hearts hard as diamonds, he said. And so he exiled them. He scattered them among the nations. And then yet God sends him, or them these great words uh, in Isaiah in these chapters, uh, promising uh, a great deliverance uh, through a great deliverer. And so we'll continue to work our way through this portion of Isaiah today. 
And we're going to start the reading at the beginning of Isaiah 43 to see something of the context of our text, which is the end of Isaiah 43. So Isaiah 43, we'll start our reading at verse 1 and read just to verse 7 for now. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So in connection with our text, let's sing again about our God not just wanting our sacrifices, but wanting our heart. And then once he has it, then he does delight in our worship and our praise. We'll sing that with two more stanzas of Psalm 51, uh, stanzas 6 and 7.
now we'll turn together to our text, uh, which is, begins at Isaiah 43, uh, verse 22. Uh, but just for keep in mind the end of our reading, uh, God mentioned uh, that he created his people for his glory. And if you look at verse 21 for a second, right before our text, then you'll see God mentions uh, that he's forming people for himself, that they might declare his praise. And so that's the context of our text. We begin at Isaiah 43 and read verses 22 to 44, verse 5. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you might be proved right. Your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. So far the reading of our text. Brothers and sisters, I read this past week that 2023 was dubbed the year of hyperfatigue. So apparently some researchers believe that there's been a growing sense of continual physical, emotional, and mental exhaustion. This was caused by things they say the researchers do, by the rising cost of living, uh, by geopolitical unrest, by constant social media usage, uh, by the news, by constant emails and text messages, not to mention the lingering effects of a global pandemic. And so in short, they say, people have been left feeling like they're being stretched, stretched in so many directions that it exhausts them mentally and physically and emotionally. And in fact, the article mentioned that people are so tired that they're starting less and less to eat properly and to exercise properly and to rest properly, all of which contribute to them feeling even more exhausted. And so we're left wondering, what can remove the exhaustion and what can fill us with energy and enthusiasm and excitement once again? And I don't know if 2023 or 2024 now are years of particular exhaustion or not, Uh, But God's word for us in Isaiah 43 does have a similar theme. It does confront us with the question, how about you? How about me? 
Are you weary? We'll study this text in three parts. First, we'll look at our weariness. And then secondly, at God's weariness. And then thirdly, at our response. So first of all, our weariness. And if you were with us for the first couple messages on this portion of Isaiah, uh, then I hope it's no surprise to you to hear that God's people, they almost certainly would have been weary in many different ways. This message was directed to God's people in a time of absolute exhaustion. They had spent decades hardened in sin. And so the Lord, as we heard, they, he delivered them into the hands of their enemies. And their cities were destroyed and their temple was destroyed. The best and brightest among them were carried off to live in a new land, in a strange land, in exile. And there, their nature and their culture was supposed to just be assimilated, to, to die out. And with it, the hope of God's grace and a Messiah to deliver them, to give them true rest. And we get a sense of their physical and emotional and spiritual exhaustion uh, in the words of Psalm 137. Uh, there the people lament in exile. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. For our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing to us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? Surely God's people would have been weary starting this new life in this strange new place with all they knew and loved taken away. And God recognizes their weariness in our passage, but God, first of all, he seems to challenge them on their weariness. He mentions you haven't just been weary at your sins and on your consequences of your sins and uh, its effects on this world. Not just exhausted at your circumstances, but if you look at verse 22, God says, you have been weary of me, O Israel. Before that, he says, you did not call upon me, O Jacob. In their exhausted lives, the Israelites saw their God as just another burden heaped upon their shoulders. At a time where you could say that, they felt they were being stretched in so many directions. It exhausted them mentally and physically and emotionally. Their God, too, they felt was stretching them now spiritually, making demands on their time and on their money and on their energy. And brothers and sisters, that's often how many non-Christians especially, but maybe also us when we're not thinking clearly. That's how we can see our religion too, as just another burden, another series of obligations, rules, and restrictions demanding our time and money. That's what religions were like back then and often are today. Attempts to appease the gods and to, to coax out of them blessings. Uh, you need to do sacrifices and rituals to get the god off your back and to, to give you uh, a break. And God says, you have been weary of me, and you did not call upon me. He goes on to say, you have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings, or honored me with your sacrifices. He explains in verse 23, if you look at it, that he hadn't been unreasonable and asked them for a lot. I haven't burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense, he says. And yet you have not brought me sweet cane with money, or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. So it seems in seeing God and his worship as just another heavy obligation, they hadn't offered God their worship. They hadn't brought him sacrifices. But there's something really, really important, something crucially important that we need to know to understand this. We need to think of the original audience and realize they would have been shocked when they heard these words 
and we should be shocked too. Because commentators all seem to agree based on the rest of Isaiah and the historical context, it seems the Israelites were diligently calling upon the Lord. They were worshiping him. They were calling out to him and praying to him. They had brought burnt offerings and sacrifices when they could and sweet cane with their money. And yet God's assessment is very clear. You have not brought me burnt offerings. You haven't honored me with your sacrifices. And brothers and sisters, this should make us deeply uncomfortable. The Israelites worshipped God. They sacrificed to him. They gave money. They devoted money to worshipping him and time. Yet they did it as a burden, out of obligation, as though he was a God that needed to be satisfied with rituals. And so God counts it all as if they hadn't done anything. And we can see this theme throughout Scripture. Already earlier in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, God has told his people, stop with the sacrifices already. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. The first verses of Zechariah 7 are just as convicting. God has kept his promise and brought his people out of exile by that time when Zechariah was writing. And so the people, they asked the Lord, Lord, should we keep on fasting uh, and mourning twice a year as we had been doing for 70 years while we were in exile? And if you look at Zechariah 7 verses 5 to 6, you can see the Lord's response. He says, during these 70 years of exile, when you fasted and mourned in the summer and early autumn, was it really for me that you were fasting? And even now in your holy festivals, aren't you eating and drinking just to please yourselves? Do we need to keep doing these fasts we've been doing for 70 years, they ask. And God essentially asks, oh, those were for me? I didn't realize You were eating and drinking for yourself. I thought you were fasting and mourning for yourself. Think about that. Really think about that. It should make us uncomfortable. God's assessment for us later today could be, why didn't you go to church today? Why didn't you worship me? Why didn't you call on my name? Why didn't you sing for me? Why didn't you pray? And we could answer, I did those things, Lord. I did every one of them. Yeah, he could say, but you didn't do it for me. You didn't do it for me. The shocking message for us here is we could be here every Sunday, one time or even two times, and yet God's assessment could be, you haven't been to church for years. Not really. Some of us, I imagine, that would actually be our testimony, looking back on our lives. I think some of us would admit that we come to worship God gladly now, but maybe for five or ten or thirty or forty years, we went to church. We spent hours and hours on worship, on volunteering and working in the church. We donated hundreds or thousands of dollars. With our hands and with our lips, we praise God, but not with our hearts. Why is the question of this text? Because it wasn't for God. It wasn't to honor him and to praise him and show our thankfulness to him. Uh, It wasn't because we loved him. So I guess it was just out of tradition 
or, or guilt or, or for a sense of works righteousness. I guess it was just for me. And so God basically says in Zechariah 7 about the fasting and mourning, I guess you must have liked it because I sure didn't. And likewise, we can easily interpret God's words as saying, why did you mindlessly sit in church for an hour or two each Sunday again, mindlessly mouthing words to these songs, paying no attention, because I am sure I never asked you to do that. I guess you're doing it for yourself. Did I say that I wanted you to come here and look at the wall and pretend to listen to a sermon? Pretend to sing these words? I never asked that of you. You're not doing it for me. You're doing it for yourself. And if that wasn't bad enough, it gets worse before it gets better in our text. We've seen our weariness, and now we'll look at our second point, God's weariness. God essentially explains, you've been heaping up these burdens on yourself, being wearied of me and my worship. And then he goes on to explain, you've also been heaping up burdens on me too. God says in verse 24, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Stop for a second and think about the enormity of that statement we just read. This is the God of the universe, the one who upholds all creation as with his hand, the one who created the mountains and flung stars into space. And he says, you have burdened me. You have wearied me with your sins. When I was studying this passage, I was reminded of some time of mine working as a landscaper. Uh, we had tried to pack in as many hours as possible working for the summer because we really needed the work uh, for some of us students who couldn't work most of the year. And so we were talking one day about how we had been really racking up the hours and working some long, difficult days. And a few of us were talking about how exhausted we had been when we got home after all that work. And one guy piped up, uh, the new guy, and he started poking fun at us a little bit. He started saying, you guys have been tired after those days of work? I wasn't tired. I went to the gym yesterday after work. And me and my coworkers, we started looking at each other a little bit because we could tell he was trying to make fun of us, but he was kind of just making fun of himself. He was saying what the rest of us knew very clearly. He should have been tired after those days of work. He just wasn't a very good worker. He wasn't doing a whole lot of anything. He wasn't going to stick around for very long, and he didn't. Well, here God tells his people, you find calling on me and sacrificing to me exhausting. But God says, you know what you should find exhausting and burdensome? You know what I find exhausting and burdensome? Your sin burdens me, God says. Your iniquities weary me. And in verse 26, God goes on to invite his people to defend themselves to consider if they are wrong or if he is wrong. He says, let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. But of course, he knows they're wrong, and his point is they should know it too. He says, your first father sinned, and your mediators transgressed against me. And this is why they're being punished and exiles, he goes on to say. And it's interesting, there's some debate here on these phrases. Uh, God mentions their first father, and he mentions their mediators. And the debate is, uh, who's he talking about exactly? Uh, some say their first father is probably Jacob. He was just mentioned in the text. Or maybe their first father who sinned was Abraham. He's usually called the father of the Israelites. Or maybe it could also, of course, be the very first father. It could be Adam. 
And likewise with the mediators, uh, people mention all kinds of prophets and priests and kings that God could be referring to. But you know what? Uh, I think that's the point. The Israelites, God is saying, you are so guilty that your best representatives, your leaders, even they are guilty. Which one? Take your pick. They've all failed. They've all burdened me. They've all sinned against me. They've all wearied me. And God asks, you are weary of me. God says, no, I am sick and tired of your sin. And now we should be thinking, wow, because we know we're no better than the Israelites, are we? Not really. What in the world is God going to do to us? We've treated our God and his worship as a burden when really us, even the best of us, we've been burdening him the whole time. And here, right in the middle of these verses, we get verse 25. Uh, Just look at verse 25 with me and just bask in the grace and the wonderful truth of that verse. God says what he's going to do in response. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. For my sake, God says. He roots the reason for his grace and mercy just deep within his own being, and praise God for that. He doesn't root it in your being or in mine. He says, for his own sake, for his own glory, for his own joy, based on his own perfect nature, not the Israelites or their leaders, certainly not yours and mine. He says, this is what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to blot out your transgressions. The word literally means to abolish, to destroy, to erase, to utterly wipe away. We sang this earlier in Psalm 51. After his absolutely horrible sins against Bathsheba and her husband, David prays that God might blot them out. And here God assures us, his people, that he absolutely will. You can picture the record of your sins. You can picture the record of mine. We ask God for forgiveness, and we get utter and complete, overwhelming forgiveness. The record is expunged. It's blotted out. It's abolished, destroyed, erased, utterly wiped away. And the question that resonates through scriptures is, how can a holy God do this? And the answer is amazing. That the only way that your sin and mine can be blotted out forever, we come to find in the New Testament, is by the blood of Jesus Christ, the true and better mediator. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Brothers and sisters, when we look at Christ, we truly see what it means for the God of the universe to be wearied and burdened by our sin and to want to remove it. He wants us, not our compulsory worship. He wants us. And when sinful man considered God a burden, he was burdened by our sin. And so what did he do for his chosen people? He took that immense weight off of our shoulders. And we can see the immense weight to the burden of our sin looking at his son. We can see that Jesus Christ was beaten mercilessly that he walked with his cross to his own execution and collapsed under the weight of it. 
He physically couldn't carry it any further. And that was just the beginning of bearing the weight of our curse and our shame and our sin. The true weight came on the cross, bearing God-forsakenness. And I can't help but think of Pilgrim's Progress. Hopefully, many of you have read it. Christian, he has this burden on his back. It's a burden of sin and shame and guilt. And it's so heavy, he can hardly move. And then finally, he comes to the cross. And there, the burden slides off his back once and for all. And throughout the rest of the book, throughout the rest of Christian's journey to the celestial city, there are many trials and difficulties he has to face. But the burden is never seen again. Never again. As Christ says in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. God doesn't want our worship and our service to him to be a burden that we bear. He came to free us from our burden. And so, brothers and sisters, the, the warning is clear. Watch out of your service to God, your worship and your prayers and praise. If it always feels like a painful and a heavy and tight yoke, because it might not be Christ's yoke at all. It might be the exhausting yoke of works righteousness. That, that yoke that has no power to free you or me or anyone else from the hyper fatigue of this fallen sinful world. It can just feel like it's pulling at you mentally and physically and emotionally and spiritually in yet another direction, only making things worse. And Eric Alexander, he, he shares a wonderful story uh, illustrating this fact. He, he says that as Christians, we can't. We have to strive not to live under guilt anymore. And he goes on to explain, As someone once said to me not long ago, I've brought that to the Lord again and again and again. And I can't get rid of the sense of guilt for that sin. And I said to him, you know, if scripture is true, and if God means what he says, when you come with that sin to him again and again, what he says to you is, what sin is this? What sin is that that you're talking about? That one Lord that's burning at my conscience and burdening my soul. Ah, he says, I forgot all about that years ago, and I refuse to bring it back to my memory. And brothers and sisters, you and I, we need to do the same. He tells us in our text plainly, I will remember your sins no more. In Jesus Christ, he won't call them to mind. He won't hold them against us. We don't need to go on living with that impossible weight of guilt any longer. Brothers and sisters, think of that and strive, God helping you to believe it. That that is how complete your forgiveness and my forgiveness is only in Jesus Christ. It's as though our sin is blotted out. As though it is wiped away, destroyed. The Lord has said, it's as though I've forgotten it and will never bring it to mind against you again. He held it against Jesus Christ already once and for all. And so we've seen our weariness and we've seen God's weariness. And now just shortly, our third and our final point, our response. And this is the cure to our spiritual exhaustion. Uh, the passage starts with God's weary people begrudgingly offering sheep and money and time and service. And what does it end with? It ends with God promising that once he's done disciplining his people 
He will deliver them and pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, he says, my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call upon the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. I hope you can see by the power of the Spirit, looking at the tremendous forgiveness and grace of our God in Jesus Christ, God's people, he promises, will willingly, even eagerly, offer their whole life to God and his service and to his people. They'll gladly be called God's people once again. They'll write the Lord's name on their hand. Uh, Apparently, this might refer to a practice of servants back then. Uh, Servants would have their master's name written on their hand. But more than that, if you have something written on your hand, that means it's always visible, right? It's always before your eyes, whatever you put your hands to, whatever you're doing, typing or at work, wherever it is. What he's saying is that people, his people, will make everything they put their hand to, all of their life, will be an offering. They'll do it willingly and eagerly for the Lord. And it's not always easy, but it's certainly not a heavy burden. Especially because when you see of the Lord's name on you, then you can remember that he has your name on him. If you flip ahead in your Bible to Isaiah 49, verse 15 to 16, there God says just these beautiful words, Isaiah 49, verse 15 to 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. So brothers and sisters, the question today is, are you weary? I hope and I pray, even if you're weary in this sin-filled world, which would make complete sense, I hope and pray your worship of God isn't a chore. It isn't a burden. It isn't an obligation, not just checking a box. Singing these words in church, giving your offerings, don't do it out of obligation. God tells us in no uncertain terms he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He makes it clear he doesn't want your money. He wants your heart. If he has your heart, he will gladly accept. He will be delighted by your prayer and your praise. He wants our heart. He showed it and proved it by giving his son. So give him your heart and then he'll be delighted by our praise. I hope and pray God in the service never weary you or me. Because of this world and our sin, it makes us experience hyper-fatigue often. And so the calling should be that if we are weary and if we are heavy laden, there we can go to Jesus Christ and there we can find rest. Amen. Please stand and join with me in singing When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.
brothers and sisters, let's once again go before our Heavenly Father in prayer. Uh, We have a couple of matters that we'll remember in our prayer. So first of all, we'll pray for the family and the friends of uh, Johan Terpstra. So Johan Terpstra passed away uh, after struggling with cancer for some time. And so we'll pray for his family, uh, especially for his aunt, uh, Inika Hadama, his niece, Alicia Quick, and other friends and uh, family he might have in our congregation. I will also pray for Ron and Shirley Dahan, uh, who are friends and relatives of people in the congregation, uh, related to Ed and Flo Dahan and Cam and Heidi Eichema, uh, perhaps no others as well. So Shirley's been diagnosed with inoperable brain cancer, and so we'll ask the Lord to be close to her and to her husband and to her children and family and friends uh, during uh, this difficult time. Let's bring these matters before our Heavenly Father. Faithful God, Precious, dear, heavenly Father, Lord, you are so great, and your greatness is beyond compare. Your greatness is unsearchable. Lord, we can hardly begin to comprehend the depths of the riches of your wisdom and your knowledge, and we can barely begin to fathom uh, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of your great love for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for how you've had mercy on us, and how you've forgiven us for your own sake, for your own glory, according to your own nature. Lord, thank you that you do forgive our sins, and you don't forgive them half-heartedly, but you forgive them completely. You blot them out. You say that you will not remember them, all for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, this is exactly the kind of Messiah, the Savior that sinful, failing people like us need. And Lord, we praise you because he's the Savior you so graciously supplied for us. And Lord, we want to praise you, and we ask that you will help us to praise you with all of our heart, and with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. Don't let us just praise you out of habit, or tradition, or superstition, or uh, a sense of self-righteousness. But Lord, we want to praise you with the praise that you are worthy of. And Lord, we know we can't even begin to do this on our own. But we thank you and we praise you that you fulfilled your promise, that you poured out your spirit on your people. And we ask that you will fill us to overflowing with your spirit and you'll rule over every moment of our lives that on every uh, action, uh, every word we speak, everything that we do every day, that we can mark it as a sacrifice of thankfulness to you. Lord, when we fall short, and so often we will, so often we do, we ask that you'll cover over those sins too and keep us running back to Jesus Christ to have those sins as well blotted out, abolished, removed for good. Lord, we ask for your spirit that we might love you and worship you and praise you, but also we might trust you, that we might rest and depend on you. Lord, we also especially ask this for help for your people during times of sorrow and times of distress. Lord, we pray for the family and friends of Johan Terpstra, especially for Enoka and for Alicia's and others in our congregation. Lord, we're thankful we praise you Uh, for conversations had in the last few weeks where Johan expressed confidence and trust in you. Lord, we ask that you'll grant his family strength in their weakness and hope in their despair and peace in their time of sorrow. Lord, we also pray the same for those facing uh, the difficult reality of illnesses, uh, particularly for those grappling with the weight uh, of a cancer diagnosis. Lord, we continue to pray for Garrett and Grace in our own congregation, uh, Garrett and Grace Vanderhorst. Today, in particular, we bring before you Ron and Shirley DeHan uh, and their many family and friends, including Ed and Flo and Cam and Heidi. Lord, we ask that you'll surround them with your perfect love and your care, 
We ask that you'll grant them the courage and strength to face the days ahead. Strength found in Jesus Christ when they can't find it in themselves. And Lord, for them and for all who are struggling with this awful disease, what we long for and what we pray for most of all is healing. Lord, we know from a human standpoint things don't look very good. But Lord, we know and we believe that your arm is not too short to save. It's never too short to save. We see that in Jesus Christ. So Lord, first of all, we pray for healing. But we also humbly say with our Savior Jesus Christ, not our will, but your perfect will be done. Lord, we love you and we, we trust you and we count on you to help those who are suffering uh, as well as their family and friends to feel this trust and confidence in you. And Lord, we ask that you will do this, that you'll strengthen uh, those who need strengthening uh, by using us, your people. Please work in us a deep desire in our hearts to draw near to those who are afflicted, draw near to those who are suffering so we can mourn with those who mourn, so we can suffer with those who suffer, but also so we can rejoice with those who rejoice. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your constant care each and every day. Lord, there are so many people here, we can't know them all, but you are, Lord, you know them all. And we thank you and praise you for the way that you continue to care for us and sustain us. And we ask that you'll continue to equip us as we go into this week ahead. Help us in all things, whatever comes our way, uh, to eagerly write your names on our hands and on our hearts and on our heads. And we, may we never forget you and never stop working for you, as you never forget us and never stop working for us working all good for all things for the good of those who love you. We pray all these things, Lord, only in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So at this point in our worship service, as every week, uh, we have the opportunity to give our gifts to the Lord who has just given so overwhelmingly generously to us. Uh, the collection today is for Manoa Manor. It's always uh, for a good cost and uh, after that, we will sing um, hymn 81, uh, stanzas 1 through 4 and stanza 6.
Brothers and sisters, receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.